Welcome, everybody, to the Health and Wellness Show. Today is Friday, April 20th, 2018. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from two other places on the planet <laughs> are uh, Doug and uh, Elliot. Hey, guys. Hey. Hello. So we have our first official bro show. Today. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the bros. Whoa. <laughs> Erica is having some technical issues, and she might join us as the, the show goes on. Cool, cool, cool. Well, we uh, uh, we know that uh, Gabby uh, was going to have to miss today, so we, we miss her, and we'll, we hope she'll be back next week. And uh, Tiffany, I believe, is struggling with power right now. Hey, yeah, yeah. So everybody's got issues. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing new there. Yeah. So today uh, we are going to talk about vegans, broccoli for brains. Do you have to be mental to be a vegan? Uh, so we want to talk about veganism, not necessarily vegetarianism, although we will touch on that, specifically veganism more so, um, and try to take a, a, a critical look at it. Uh, <clears throat> as many people know, it's a touchy subject, maybe not as touchy as like vaccines, you know, or mm. uh, uh, cancer research and stuff like that, but uh, it is still touchy. Uh, anybody who's tried to have a conversation around veganism, you probably find that about 5 to 10% of the time you have a rational conversation um so and i'm really i I should caveat this whole show i'm not trying to be cruel i may leak out uh you know i have a silly kind of like poke fun attitude towards vegans but i recognize that they're human beings they're making their own choices so i'm not trying to be cruel but there are aspects of veganism that are dangerous for you know physically for people for your health uh and it uh there's aspects of it that result in certain mental shifts uh, that we've seen, like proclivity to uh, anger and outbursts and stuff like that. There's very specific reasons for that. It's not just saying like, oh, vegans are crazy. Like there's a reason they're crazy. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, uh, I don't know if we're going to turn anybody off today. Uh, if you do, please join us next week. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, trigger warning. Yeah, trigger yeah. warning. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, <clears throat> So as everybody probably is aware, uh, vegetarianism is uh, basically, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, guys, but no um, uh, red meat, uh, chicken, uh, or fish. But So like vegetarians will eat eggs, uh, I think, uh, butter. Yeah, they basically won't eat the meat of animals, but will eat animal products. So basically eggs, eggs and milk, more or less. That seems like a very rational, logical choice that somebody might make. You know what I mean? Mm. To me. So I guess I want to explore why do why does it seem like the transition into veganism is so much more radical? And I think it's it, I think at the core. So I, I, let me back up a bit. So then veganism is you don't have any, you don't have dairy, you don't have honey, yeah. um, any yeah. animal products at all, no butter, no eggs, cheese, anything like that. And they'll go. I think they, I think not honey. Wear- leather or anything like that like not you know avoiding animal products like in Across in toto yeah like everything yeah yeah i know a couple of vegans who do eat honey and they oh, still right identify as vegans but there's maybe some that don't eat honey either yeah i think i guess they could rationalize that by saying that the honey is like leftover right there's probably yeah. honey that the bees would not end up using and so then it's all right but i mean the same thing goes for eggs you know so yeah. i think that's kind of interesting yeah. um but yeah, I think the crossover there comes into this like really, it's, it smells like dogmatic religion to me. Mm-hmm. And that's the world 
that I grew up in where is very, very black and white. There's no room for discussion or nuance around a topic. You either do this and you're good or you don't and you're bad or vice versa. And that, so veganism to me has that familiar feel of very dogmatic religion. And I think that that's what bothers me personally about it because of all the other things that come along with that. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's hard to say, like, obviously, I mean, we're talking in kind of, we're talking in broad strokes here and it's not, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, any individual might be very different about uh, their approach to different things. And I mean, there's a lot of different, like, you know, there's different reasons for, for doing kind of uh, vegetarianism, veganism, you know, some people are, are kind of, you know, I think the most, most uh, common one is the, um, you know, animal, um, you know, wanting to, alleviate the suffering of animals or not cause yeah. any animal suffering, um, yeah. which in itself I think is, is kind of misguided, but, you know, I can kind of respect that, you know, when you look at things like, uh, factory farming and animal abuses and all these kinds of things that are going on. Yeah, I get, I get that, you know, anybody with a conscience is kind of like, yeah, this is really bad. Maybe we should, uh, try and do something to, to stop this. Um, but I mean, then there's other approaches too, like some people are doing it for their health, which I think is extremely misguided. Um, and I mean, I'm sure there's like every individual vegan or vegetarian out there has their own reasons for doing it. But, um, yeah, I do happen to think, I mean, this might be, well, it's not my own personal bias, actually. I was going to say this is my personal bias, but it's actually well-founded that I think it's extremely misguided. Yeah. Yeah, Oh, go ahead, Elliot, please. No, I was just going to say that I agree. Um, in my own experience, I've come into contact with quite a few vegans. Um, since I studied nutrition, a lot of my co-students are vegan. Um, and there seems to be two main branches of that, or two main reasons, as sort of Doug touched upon, the reason why why someone would become a vegan. And one is, is purely because they bought into the... Um, the common belief that meat causes cancer or that animal products are um, unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And so they believe that veganism is a healthier option. Uh, and and they seem to be less sort of set um, or less fanatical about it, let's just say. Mm. Whereas you have another group of people who... Um, that it's really based on... It's like an emotionally driven choice... Um, out of the respect for animals and the amelioration of animal suffering and everything like that. But with those kinds of people, um, there's very little room for debate. So I found that I can have very rational sort of um, scientific discussions about the nutritional science behind different diets with a vegan who would choose to do it based on health. Mm-hmm. Whereas they seem to be more open to different perspectives, whereas the ones which are doing it out of emotion, um, it seems as though it's very difficult to have a conversation with these people. Yeah. And no matter what evidence you present um, in terms of nutritional science, there's there's no sort of getting getting past that barrier. There's there's yeah. a certain barrier, and. It, it seems as though anything that you say can can be um, can be thrown out basically and dismissed because it, it cannot reach that um, how to say it. Uh, well, it's an ideology essentially, right? Yeah, that, that's basically what it is. It's, it's fanatical, you know. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's approaching a it's approaching a, a hypothesis without a, any uh, conclusion being possible. That's <clears throat> that's what connects it to the religion for me. It's like you said, once you stray into that area, you have to frame the discussion. Say like, okay, now we're having a conversation around belief and opinion. Yeah. And let's let's go ahead and have that conversation if we can handle it. Um, yeah. But if you're having a conversation around uh, scientific fact, biology, chemistry, you can see the outcome, you know, yeah. uh, and, and you can then talk towards it. And, and somebody and I've heard people who have switched uh, diets say this. They're like, oh, you know, I didn't realize I thought that it was bad. But now I find out if I eat uh, red meat from wild game, you know, it's OK for me and I feel much better. You know, and then I can go in and talk to, you know, the hunters or the butchers or whatever about the moral issues around this, if that's a concern of mine. But it's like, <clears throat> how do I say this? People who are, let's say, hypothetically looking to, I'm just going to throw this out there, join a religion. You know, I'm, I'm really thinking about maybe becoming a Christian because, you know, I've, I've gone to I've gone to church with some friends and it sounds good to me. You know, and so now I'm on the cusp of, of being convinced and that you when you when you're in that transitionary phase, the belief overrides any of the logical stuff around it. And so you, you, you feel good. You have all these things wrapped into that experience. Um, not to mention biology and chemistry in your brain, certain chemicals that are being released. But when you're, uh, I'm kind of losing my train of thought here. <laughs> when, when you're trying to talk to a person who is not in that realm of belief and they're coming out of it. It's not like joining a religion. It's just like changing your MO because this works better than that. Mm. You know, it's, it's a different situation. So the, the, the whole context around the conversation is completely different. Well, yeah, you almost I have to have that establishing, you know, framework when you talk to someone. Yeah, I think that that's true. And I think, I, I think it's, it's pretty obvious when, when, well, I mean, maybe it's not so obvious and, you know, some people can be kind of tricky, but, um, I mean, we fool ourselves all the time with this, you know, when you've actually made a decision from an emotional place, you know, and it's based on something like faith or, um, you know, just uh, like feelings, you know, and yeah. a lot of times, um, I mean, I think we make decisions like that all the time. And then we'll yeah. often come up with narratives that are, are kind of like the the intellectual reasons that I am doing this. And those a lot of times, I mean, most of the time, probably they don't vibe. Right. And it's like there, there was a, a guy. I actually wrote an article on this. There was a guy in a video that was floating around. His name was Dr. Milton Mills. And he was basically saying all these scientific things about why um, veganism was actually a better thing in that um you know, all protein comes from plants and you should cut out the middleman and just uh, kind of stick with um, plants and not, not eat animals. But the thing is, when you actually like get in there and you dig into it, it's like none of his arguments actually made any sense. And mm. the, th the fact of the matter is, when I looked into him a little bit more, he's actually a, a religious guy. He's a Christian. Um, I don't know if he's Seventh-day Adventist, but he, he is a, a Christian who believes that the Bible has told us not to eat any meat not mm -hmm. to eat any animal products or any of those kinds of things. So it's kind mm -hmm. of like you can see right there, like if he came to his decision from a place of religion or from a place of emotional kind of um, not based on logic or maybe that's a bit strong, but at least, you know, it's not, it's not an intellectual decision. Um, you can see then that anything that's being attached to it, which tries to appeal to that more intellect side of things, isn't necessarily going to vibe very well. And in that case, it really didn't. Mm -hmm. yeah and and also i think when it's coming from that that um stance of of belief 
um, there will be even if someone thinks that they are attempting to find um, logical reasons for their decision, there's 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 always confirmation bias, you know, and people um, will will actively search out research which seems to back up their stance. Yeah. Um, and this is very common, I think, with both vegetarians and vegans because, as we know, there's scientific research to back up lots of different things. Now, the quality of that and the context is always different. And, and so I think because there's such a vast array of science, some of it is BS and some of it is legit, mm. um, I think that it's it's very easy f- for them to find find ways not to question their stance you know mm-hmm. well in the <clears throat> we need to talk about the gray areas here too because when a vegan says eating red meat from the grocery store or a factory farm is bad they're correct yeah you know but they want to paint the entire situation with that and it's it's very hard to get into talking about organic and grass-fed meat or humane methods of butchering and stuff like that and even more difficult to get into like hunting for your own meat um that's a whole nother discussion yeah. but uh yeah there's an I mean, interesting it, sorry go oh, on i cut you off there no i was just going to say that the um <clears throat> that that distinguishing factor between you know what is good and what is bad we're leaving out the context of the source you know and mm. that i think is like when you when you conflate the morals around the issue with the questionable source and the quality of the meat or whatever it is and the practices by which it was ascertained and you don't take in that full picture and talk about every aspect yeah. of it you've, you've already taken steps backward you know yeah it like lacks nuance really and there's a good example yeah. of that actually there was a, a recent uh well it's ongoing actually in toronto um where there's a, a restaurant called antler and they specialize in all kind of um I don't want to say exotic meats, but it's kind of like like game, you know. It's things game like meat, yeah. uh, you know wild boar and deer and uh, you know things things like that, where it's it's not kind of like it, it's the exact opposite of like factory farming and things like that. It's all very concerned with uh, sustainability and uh, um, you know not exploiting animals in a you know minimizing their suffering things like that yeah and yeah. uh they had they put on their sign of like apparently they're pretty witty with their chalkboard sign out front and they um they put on their um deer's the new kale and apparently <laughs> that just like a, I'm sure. a vegan who was cycling by just got irate about that oh yeah and um so there have been protests out front of the restaurant because despite sure. which is which is ridiculous right like you know if a vegan's going to protest like a meat restaurant you know why choose the one that's actually making efforts to um you know be sustainable and be you know um, better uh, than a factory farm, you know, go protest yeah. McDonald's or something like that. Like yeah. it just, I mean, what the guy said, the guy was re- recently interviewed on uh, Joe Rogan actually. And what he was saying is that it might, that might actually be the reason is because they think that there is no such thing as ethical farming. They're right. like, no, that's, that's a myth. There's no such thing. Anytime you're killing an animal, it's, it is unethical. Therefore they're going to protest this, Guy, you know, it's a small business, and it's like the amount of actual damage that they're doing on the grand scale is so minimal, even from yeah. a vegan perspective. 
So it, it it's kind of interesting because it, I think they, they really do lack that nuance. Like they do kind of, you know, no no farming is uh, is ethical. No farming of animals is ethical. So, yeah, yeah it, I don't know. It's hey, it's a tough one because I'm on board with factory with, with being against factory farms. They're um, they're cruel. They're awful. You know, mm-hmm. the conditions are really bad. A lot of these animals are dying of infection. Um, yeah. You know, when you eat like your fancy like Wagyu steak that's all marbled, that's a sick cow. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like it is cruel. It's cruel yeah. for the living creature. It's it's uh, being able to. <clears throat> discuss and marry the the ethic. How do I say this? The the ethics in the in the worldview of a carnivore with the concept of compassion. That is very hard for people. Yeah. Um, and that you know. So I I get into a, a fair number of these discussions too, like around um, fishing. Like I'm very concerned if I catch a fish with killing it humanely and quickly right away. Mm-hmm. Like I don't leave fish on stringers. You know, I don't let them suffocate on the ground. I'm not trying to be high and mighty. It's just it bothers me. So, right. you know, I looked up and learned how to do it quickly. Um, same thing with hunting. I <clears throat> totally bear my soul here. I lost a deer on an arrow a number of, like, four years ago. Hmm. Um, I was I was bow hunting and uh, lost it, took off and followed the blood trail for, like, 300 yards until it was gone, looked for it for, like, six hours, couldn't hmm. find it, had the dog and a number of other people out there and everything. Couldn't find it. And that still eats me up. When I think about it, I feel sick because that animal suffered and died in pain and panic, you know, and that's not what I wanted. However, there is a however. I have to understand that objectively it would have died as awful of a death in its natural life. Now, that's not to say, like, I still wish I hadn't have done it. But when I start to kind of loop and feel so guilty and so awful about it, I have to remember that a lot, you know, these animals that live in the wild are—they have their throats torn out, they die of starvation, cold, you know, all these things that are as bad. That is a brutal life. And if you can kill an animal quickly and humanely, you learn how to do it, and you're conscious about it. It's actually a better death. Um, mm. But again, it's a difficult conversation. People are uncomfortable with death. It's hard to talk about. Yeah, I think you know. that touches on a really important point, though, Jonathan, because I think. Um, this is something that vegans and a lot of vegetarians really can't come to terms with, is that death is intimately tied with life. It's a mm-hmm. part of life, and suffering is also a part of life. Um, and so, I, I mean, I can speak from personal experience here, because uh, just to give you a brief overview, you know, I... Uh, I became vegetarian when I was about six years old. Um, I can distinctly remember almost being traumatized when my brother told me that the food on my plate was a dead animal, a dead chicken. (laughs) And uh, and that really stuck with me. My mum was vegetarian as well, so I think that probably played a, a large role in that. And so I was vegetarian for around 14 years. Um, And when people would ask me the question of why I was vegetarian, it was because um, it was was the emotional side of it. It, You know, I I felt guilty. I felt really guilty for contributing to the death of another living being, and I didn't want to be part of that. Um, But that, when I sort of, learned more and gained more life experience I came to realize that that was 
that's part of the life cycle. You know, that's just mm-hmm. what happens. And there's no thing that anyone can do to escape that. You, you are part of that, and that is nature, whether you like it or not. Um, and you can fight against that, or you can accept it and be part of that. And so I think that for, for these individuals, they, they find it very difficult to accept that. And I'm not sure why. I think there's probably... I think the psychology of it is really interesting. Um, and I think there's, you know, two things that really come to mind sort of in shaping a vegan or a vegetarian, um, I think is probably early developmental trauma. Mm. Um, I think that, I mean, if you look at many vegans and also vegetarians, and I know this, if you look online, you can read their perspective or if, if you speak to them in person, they will probably tell you this at some point. Um, is that they often they feel more empathy for animals than they do for other human beings Mm. and that's really strange but you can see this in the way that sort of some of these fanatical vegans actually act how they're really horrible i mean for instance that that um what what doug was talking about with that deer restaurant in toronto i mean those vegans were trying to shut down a man's livelihood they're trying yeah. to destroy uh, another human being's business um, because just because he was selling meat. And so yeah. they seem to have a distinct lack of empathy for other human beings, but <clears throat> they feel all of this empathy for, for animals. And I think there's a, I think this perhaps stems back to perhaps some trauma in, in the, the early developmental stages whereby maybe they learn that um, other human beings are are not safe. You know, they are they're mm. not loving. You know, they they have a reason to to distrust and dislike other human beings. They learn that the world is not a safe place, and so they develop this hatred towards humanity. And I think that's one of the ways that this manifests is is in veganism. You know, and they, they yeah. seem to have so much pent up anger and distaste for anyone for just ordinary human beings yeah you know i think that's really interesting and i think another one as well i think i think the feeling excessively guilty um for for consuming animals and contributing to that suffering i think uh, and i think this was probably the case for myself as well i think that when there is some sort of some kind of traumatic event in the early childhood or something and someone develops a, a sense of shame, you know, mm. a sense of shame and, and feel guilty for almost existing, you know, yeah. then I think that that can manifest also in, in, in the kind of vegetarian mindset whereby they, um, yeah, they feel guilty to exist in our world. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. yeah, because I mean, the, the whole, the life cycle is part of life. Like it's inextricable from it, you know, it's like. The one, the thing I always think about is that, you know, if you think about these animals, it's like something is going to eat that animal. Like, that's just the way it is. If it's living out in the wild, it, it's going to get eaten. There's pretty much like, you know, you don't hear about a lot of animals dying of old age. Uh, I don't yeah. think that generally happens. So it's kind of like, well, you, you know, everything that that's the way life works is that everything consumes something else, you know, yeah. whether it be yeah. these herbivores that are eating um, only plants and plants are alive. Versus, you know, uh, carnivores that are actually eating other animals. I mean, you know, we can't 
remove ourselves from that system. We can't remove ourselves from that cycle. You know that right. that you are always in some way contributing to that the death of something. And it's kind of like, yeah, to to get your your head around that, I think for some people seems to be extremely difficult, and they'd rather avoid it or yeah, live well, under the delusion that they can avoid it. This is kind of a callback to what that conversation we had a few weeks ago about natural. What is natural? You know, mm-hmm. our, <clears throat> are humans actually part of the natural world? So are the things that we make then natural? You know, um, and if you go by the uh, at least the, the Christian, I don't know if Islam and, and uh, Judaism have the same precepts necessarily, but the whole Christian thing about being stewards of the planet, you know, we are in that in that uh, philosophy, we are put as as stewards, as above and, and in a con- kind of a controlling, responsible, you know, place. Um, now, that may be uh, I'm not speaking to the, the validity of the description necessarily, but I'm saying that might be true, but it means different things. It's like saying like, there's a, <clears throat> a phrase that I like that, uh, life isn't fair, but you can be. Um, mm-hmm. but if you take that, you could apply that to both sides of this debate that we're talking about. So I think vegans would say you can be fair means I don't eat animals and, uh, carnivores or anybody who does eat animals would say you can be fair by ensuring humane, you know, uh, butchering practices and humane uh, life conditions and stuff like that. So it's just about how we define our terms and, and what we're looking for. Hmm. Um, but when it comes down to the issue of life and death, the justification in, in people's minds becomes much more heavy. You know, so for vegans feel ultimately justified uh, because they're talking about death and death is the, is the worst thing, you know? Hmm. And so it, it's almost like a, like a homicide detective has free reign to go wherever they want because they're investigating a homicide. You know, that's almost like we're vegans. They're like this, I'm, you know, it's a righteous cause. Hmm. And that's, uh, that's, I think where a lot of their motivation comes from. But Elliot, what you said about them being cruel towards humans is true. Not across the board. Of course, all vegans are different. Um, there are some who, like we had talked about, approach it from a health sort of a science perspective and they believe that it's better for them based on what they've learned. Um, so not all of them are rabid, but there there are a lot of people that are uh, and have called for the death of humans, yeah. you know, in regards to the mistreatment of animals. And, uh, you know, I go back and forth on that. I mean, it's like, you know, there's there's the case of like a psychopath who just gets his kicks out of beating dogs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe we could do without that guy, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and then there's somebody who's a responsible and ethical hunter who somebody thinks should not be around anymore because of what they do. Um, and this is a very tenuous situation when you start, we have people wishing harm on others because of, you know, their beliefs. I mean, yeah. Again, we're back to religion. Well, there's been a few um, instances of that in the press actually, um, where uh, there was one incident in France where a, um, a vegan, there was some kind of uh, hostage taking situation. And I think it was tied to ISIS if I'm not mistaken. And um, there was a butcher who um, was killed during the whole thing. And some vegan got out there on their social media and started saying, I'm not sorry at all that this butcher died and, um, you know, one less uh, animal torturer or something along those lines. Like really kind of just being like the absolute vitriol behind it, right? Like this this butcher absolutely 100% deserved to die. Yeah. It's kind of like, and this is supposed to be a compassionate uh, vegan here. Yeah. And there was a couple of yeah. other ones too, where it's it's the same kind of thing. It's like it's 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 you know, vegans who are kind of wishing death and suffering upon 
people who they fundamentally it's just people who they disagree with basically yeah but doug you're wishing death and suffering on animals no well <laughs> not suffering I mean, I <laughs> no, i'm with you yeah not suffering yeah but death is a part of life and so it's you're not wishing death you're accepting that it exists exactly right? yeah. yeah exactly so i mean it is like <clears throat> the animal kingdom is so cruel uh I don't know if people are really generally aware of that or not. I mean, it's it's nasty. You know, bears cannibalize each other. Uh, uh-huh. Rats, I don't know if people know that, but that, that rats do as well. But a lot of animals, uh, like <clears throat> bears is the fun one for me. It's fun, tongue-in-cheek, of course, <laughs> to talk about because the perception is so skewed. We think of bears as kind of like generally cute. We have that trope of, of teddy bear that came from Teddy Roosevelt. I think we talked about that story. Yeah on the show before, but, um, long story short, Teddy Roosevelt treated, uh, one of his hunting party, treat a bear. They went said, Hey, Teddy gave him the gun here, shoot the bear. He said, no, this bear is, is, uh, is treat. It's not fair for me to shoot it. Handed the guy back the gun. That's the story. And that's Teddy's bear. So that's the Teddy bear. And it came from a cartoon that was drawn around that story of this cute, cuddly bear. What nobody really knows, or very few people, I think know of the actual story that he then told, one of his uh, his hunting party to go ahead and put the bear out of its misery with a knife. Mm. <laughs> so uh, it killed the bear with a knife after after all that was said and done. So it's really not that you know glamorous of a story. And that's <laughs> where the whole thing about teddy bears being cute and cuddly comes from. Um, <clears throat> but bears are vicious monsters. Uh, they eat their own young mm. a lot of times. Um, so if you want to bring all that kind of perception into it, you can. And you can have a conversation with somebody about just how cruel real life is. Well, um, you know. the crazy thing is that um, there are vegans out there, and of course, I don't think that this is the majority. I think it's a few, few kind of nutballs, but they um, will actually say that they would like to actually take the cruelty out of nature. They would like yeah. lions and tigers and bears <laughs> to be vegetarian, um, mm-hmm. and they see no reason why that that can't be accomplished um, because you know these these animals are just misguided eating other animals. Obviously, every every species on the face of the planet is supposed to be vegetarian or vegan. So, um, yeah, there, what is there the, what really is, is whackball people out there who believe this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, but there's, you know, what is the prevalence of that? And I'm not trying to, to discourage what you're saying. I get it. That is no. totally crazy. But I'm wondering how many people really think that. Well, probably not very many. Yeah, because, yeah. I, you know, there are obviously, I mean, you know, if you take a whole group, any particular group of people, say 100 people, like... It, at least a couple of them are going to be just in, insane, right? Like just yeah. have just absolutely crazy views on yeah. things, right? So obviously, yeah, I don't think that that viewpoint really represents the vegan community as a whole. Um, yeah. But there's a couple of nut bars out there who, who kind of like and, – and you can kind of – it gives you a kind of a perspective on the psychology of the situation, right? Where it's kind of like they are so averse to the idea of anything consuming another being uh, as long as it's not a plant. Or I mean, was, yeah. So yeah. it's it's basically like they they are so averse to this idea that 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 uh, you know even an animal would eat another animal that they they actually believe that they should be converted somehow. There's there's a fundamental problem I think not just with that but with even sort of the conservative vegan mindset and it's it's this projecting of human emotions and human values onto the process of nature and and like like you said jonathan nature's cruel and but 
is it cruel? It, well, I mean, it may be cruel right. from the perspective of humans, but <laughs> ultimately, it just is. Yeah, well, I mean, one That's could say point. it's it's beautiful, you know. However, you want to describe it, I mean, it's merely from a human centric viewpoint, and I think that moving beyond that, trying to anyway, because it's very difficult. But when you try to move beyond having that human centric view, it's kind of just like an objective fact. Yeah. It's like it just is. I can't tell you what it is. It's just that, and you can either try and fight against that, but you won't win. <laughs> and, and because when you look at the facts on the ground, so to speak, um, <coughs> the vegan arguments fall apart when compared with when when, when really sort of um, investigated. So, for instance, the idea that you can live without. <laughs> without harming another living being is just absolutely ludicrous because mm. i mean every time you walk on the floor you know there's thousands if not millions of bacteria that you are destroying every single time you step foot um yeah. you know the the like i think someone i think it was doug that mentioned this before but you know there's research coming out that fungus and that various types of plants and things can actually communicate with one another and actually also communicate pain when they are plucked. So when you're tearing a lettuce out of the ground, it squeals. Mm -hmm. And that is, I mean, who are we to say that, you know, there's, I think there's a certain degree of, um, how to say it. I, Leah Keith described it very well in a book and she was talking about the human-centric view and how what we do is, or what some people do anyway, is that they assume that only living beings that express um, characteristics similar to humans are considered alive. Yeah. So, for mm. instance, you can see, you know, a pet dog or a cow or something. You could, I guess you could make the argument that they display behaviors which could be likened to humans whereby there's certain sort of emotional traits and things like that and you can develop bonds with them and things and they have the same sort of physiology they have eyes they have they need to eat they need to poo they reproduce and everything like that so they're very similar to humans when you were to compare the two to say a lettuce in the ground mm. and so what i think happens quite a lot is people see okay this is like a human and this is not like a human therefore the only thing that is like a human is alive and everything that isn't like a human is that is, is not alive and so it's okay to eat the things which aren't like humans but her argument or her point in 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 the book was that that is a completely human-centric and arrogant view right. because mm -hmm. it, it denies anything other than a likeness or likeness to human beings it, it basically denies them of a living force whereas a lot of what these vegans and vegetarians proclaim is that they respect all life and the yeah. fact is is that we are all made up of the same atoms so you can't differentiate an animal from a plant from a human being because fundamentally we are all very similar um and so you know, according to all these different traditional philosophies and everything, they talk about this life force permeating everything. Mm. And so to differentiate that, 
you're essentially almost playing God. You're saying, well, this is alive and this isn't alive, and so this is okay, but you don't make the rules, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely it does. Yeah, I mean, I think they sometimes try to get around that by saying they'll only eat things that don't suffer. But then, like the point you just made, Elliot, it's like, you know, just because you can't hear them scream doesn't mean that they aren't. So, Totally. Yeah. Well, and there's even trees that uh, communicate with each other when there's a, a, a <clears throat> you know, grazer or a, a worm or a, a parasite of some kind, like up the line of trees. They will actually communicate downwind to other trees with, I think it's with pheromones or something similar to that. And then the other trees actually change the characteristics of the uh, the makeup of the leaves to make them more bitter or less palatable. So there is this, <clears throat> you know, and there's the communication between uh, mycelial network and the roots of trees to other trees and stuff like that. And, you know, so the whole thing is connected and it's feeling and thinking and, and communicating however you want to describe those words. Mm -hmm. um, it is doing some semblance of those things. So it's more like we can back the whole discussion all the way up and say we're all inflicting pain and death. Now it's up to basically what what do you want to ingest, you know? Um, yeah. And then you get so, onto the yeah. science. <laughs> yeah. So speed, maybe to transition into that a little bit, before we talk about like the actual health science around veganism, uh, what you had mentioned, Elliot, about uh, agriculture, I think you mentioned that briefly, but that was coming to mind is – there's this statistic, and I, I need to find a, a primary source on this, but I had heard, and I'm just being open and honest that I don't have a source for this in front of me, that the uh, with, with modern agriculture, if you eat a strictly vegetarian or vegan diet, there are more deaths per plate that happen yeah. than if you are eating meat, even in the case of factory farming, which sounds crazy, but it's, it's, it weighs out because uh, now I'm not a proponent of factory farming. So from my perspective, let's go to like like an elk and you shoot an elk, you have 1,200 pounds of meat. That was one death. You know what I mean? But <clears throat> you till a field, you're killing fawns, rabbits, voles, moles, um, all sorts of insects and whatever. And not only that, but you're destroying the that ecosystem, which supported much more life into the future. So it's really like, I mean, it's... it's um, it's like the the Mongol hordes. You're coming in and and decimating an entire area and saying this will never be fruitful again because because what? Because I feel bad about killing things. Well, you just killed a thousand things. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. or you're okay with it. Maybe you didn't drive the combine, but you're okay with it. You know, and uh, <clears throat> it's the same thing with with people. I think that uh, that are on the carnivore side of things. Like I would like to have a similarly heavy discussion with people who do eat meat about the kind of meat that they're eating. And that's a whole nother thing, you know, but um, if you want to just talk about death per plate, you, you can get down and dirty with it and explain that you're actually causing more death statistically. Again, in my, you know, shifting and molding the numbers to suit my argument, I, I might be, I might give that. No, I don't think a so. That, you know, because it's like, uh, I don't know. I, I guess I'm just saying I haven't come to a hundred percent conclusion on that, except that that, objective fact is true um but i still you know it still comes back to factory farming and that's the majority of the source of our plant food and our animal protein is mm -hmm. is these giant factory farms and it's not we have too many people now it, it's not practical for people to hunt you know for their food um 
for one, you either have to live in a rural area and have quick access and the ability to do it, or you have to have a lot of money and be able to go to places where you're allowed to do it. Um, you know, it's not very easy for every person to actually hunt the meat it would take to feed them and their family, um, given how many people we have now. So <clears throat> also not to discourage hunting, but I think where we find ourselves in this society is that we need to concentrate on places like the restaurant you mentioned in Toronto, uh, antlers or, you know, small farms, small butchers, people who are actually being ethical and sustainable and mm -hmm. thinking about these things and trying to feed their community, uh, instead of the entire country or the Western hemisphere. Yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, but that, that even I have uh, some problems with that argument because we have a giant, uh, you know, starvation problem all across the planet. But maybe this more communal focused kind of um, sustainable food generation would actually help that situation. You know? Yeah. I because think people, is. yeah, I mean, like I, uh, if, if you allowed, let's say hypothetically, so I, I, I hunt and I know I live in a rural area and I know a lot of hunters. If you allowed a dispensation for an extra tag to say, okay, the population is X this year. If you want, you can sign up for two tags, but you have to send meat from the second deer to a processing facility or wherever it's going to get distributed. If you were able to start something like that up, um, <clears throat> you immediately help, you know, a lot of people in the city who are uh, poor, who are eating Ho-Ho's and Cheerios and, and, and shitty cereal, pardon my French, because they, they, that's where they are. If you can get, you know, uh, game meat into that system and help people start to eat healthier, you know, there's a number of possibilities, but this all requires cooperation and you know yeah i don't know i'm just kind of spitballing there are <laughs> options there are options to, in this in this realm but we're so stuck into our patterns we have the grocery store we have culver's mcdonald's burger king you know we have all these things um and then people who you know who don't eat meat uh they also have they'll go and get you know fries or or whatever um salad uh, from the same sources, which is just as bad. A salad from McDonald's is no healthier than a burger from McDonald's. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's a, it's a dark situation when we start talking about food and health. But <clears throat> if I can circle back to the whole death per plate thing, I wanted to use that to transition into talking about the health science around it. Um, mm. So we can, we can say, uh, for one, we're talking about morals and ethics, and yes, that's debatable because that's personal to each person, but we can explain from this point of view how you, at least I think that the ideal thing is to accept the state of life, that life and death exist together, yeah. and then we can go and look at, so, okay, are you inflicting death and how much? Well, on the vegan side of things, you're actually inflicting more, so let's talk about that further. Now, are you actually doing your body any good? And that's where I'm going to hand the floor to Elliot because he can explain how you're not. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, on to you. <laughs> well, you know, it's really interesting because I am often sort of uh, involved in um, in debates about this very topic. Yeah. So, yeah. the 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 movement of veganism and vegetarianism, um, a lot of the points that they that they use to justify this lifestyle uh, are, are really valid. They are valid, like we've spoken about briefly before. Factory farming, um, pesticide use on vegetables, etc. This stuff is really toxic. And I think that this is probably 
uh, a great contributing factor toward many of the sort of statistics which do show um, correlations between meat meat eating and um, and disease, and that's generally because, like us, uh, animals do tend to accumulate toxins, and so if they're in a really crappy environment, they are going to accumulate the stuff, and unfortunately, that accumulates in their fat. And so there's a lot of research which, I mean, it does show a correlation between animal fat and poor health. And so you can kind of forgive the naive vegan or vegetarian for looking at those statistics and um, and making a sort of rash decision based on that. But I think that when you start to look at the details and the sort of the nitty gritty of the nutritional science, then those arguments do fall apart because we cannot compare factory farmed meat to normal or or healthily raised pasture fed and grass fed meat. They Mm -hmm. are two completely different things. And it's like comparing apples and oranges. Mm -hmm. It really is. I mean, when you look at the consistency, the fatty acid composition, um, the, the, the B vitamins, the various nutrients in meats, um, when you're comparing organically raised meat with factory farmed meat, they are so far apart from one another. It's really, it's a fascinating topic. Um, so I just wanted to clear that up first of all, is that we cannot look at the studies done on meat which has been factory farmed. And unfortunately, 99% of the studies are done on meat which is factory farmed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is a certain degree, it gets quite blurry here. And so um, I, I, I think that many people going from a standard Western diet, particularly a standard American diet, which is heavily loaded with, you know, refined sugars, um, all sorts of poor quality meats um, and and basically junk food and they go on like a detox and then they decide to go vegan or vegetarian I think many of them do experience benefits and mm-hmm. I this is clear but I think that this is largely due to the um, to the removal of, of ju- junk from the diet mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's got anything to do with um, the fact that they've removed meat or animal products from their diet, I think it's probably due to the fact that they've taken out all of the crap. So maybe they've decided to go vegan. Well, most vegan diets generally don't contain much processed foods. It, a lot of it is focused on whole foods. And I think that if you were to go from a standard American diet and go on to any diet which included whole foods, you would see benefits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... To, to make the assumption that it is due to a vegan diet, I think that's fairly sort of uns, unsubstantiated. Yeah. So there's, there's certain nutrients that you simply cannot get from vegetables, unfortunately. Um, and so w- I just want to talk briefly about some of those. Um, one of those is vitamin A. So most people know of vitamin A. They think of carrots. It's like what my mom and dad used to tell me to eat lots of so that I could have good eyesight. (laughs) And that's because vitamin A is like it contributes to your eyesight, but it also contributes to loads of other things. It's really important. And so uh, you can get it or you can get a form of pre-vitamin A, like a precursor to it. And that is found in orange and dark green vegetables. So carrots or sweet potato, these are sources of, of 
they're called carotenoids. And so ideally, in a healthy person with good genetics, they would be able to take these vegetable vitamin A and convert it into active vitamin A. But for many people, that doesn't actually work. For myself, uh, my particular genetics don't really seem to support that. There's certain genetic variations which mean that the enzyme which can do that conversion uh, can slow down. And I'm one of those people. And I think a lot of the people in the uh, in the Western world actually have that genetic variation. So it turns out that we find it very difficult to take vitamin A from vegetables and convert it into usable vitamin A. And so that leaves us with very little options uh, other than animal foods. And that's in eggs and that's in liver and that's in, you know, red meat in general. Um, there's another one which is called vitamin K2. And this is an absolutely amazing nutrient. Um, and it's really under-recognized. But there's a book by... Um, I can't remember the author's name, but it's called Vitamin K2 and the Calcium Paradox. And it's a really interesting book. It talks all about this nutrient. And um, and this is actually only really found in animal foods. It's found in dairy products and eggs and, um, and liver and stuff like that. Um, but again, the only non-animal source that you can get it from is, um, is I think it's called Natto which is yeah. like a really weird form of fermented soybeans that apparently mm-hmm. just tastes, tastes like salty jelly. But it's, it's... rank. <laughs> Have you tried it? Oh, yeah. It's, like, it's got the texture of, like, mucus. <laughs> so, yeah, other than mucus, you can't get vitamin K2 in your diet. <laughs> and so some people can take uh, vitamin, normal vitamin K from vegetables and convert it, but the conversion is really quite low. Um, and some people with good, good gut bacteria can actually make vitamin K2. But again, living in this world, uh, this would be very difficult because many of us don't have good gut bacteria and many of us don't eat mucus or natto, you know. So, so there's like, I think there's a good reason to suggest that a lot of us probably don't get enough vitamin K2 in our diets. So this is another one that is really quite important. And I think it's probably lacking severely in vegetarian and vegan diets. Um, And then there's all the other kinds of nutrients. So you've got the rest of the fat-soluble vitamins. I mean, like vitamin D. Uh, This is a problem as well. This is something I wanted to touch upon. And because... Vitamin D is usually found in animal foods, okay? So it's usually found in, it's found in oily fish, um, it's found in eggs, it's found in lard, it's found in animal fats and butter, um, or the majority of it actually comes from food fortification, so processed foods, so like cereals and things. Now, when someone transitions from a, a really processed food, uh, processed food diet, that's been fortified with all of these vitamins, they'll transfer over to a vegan or vegetarian diet based on whole foods. But unfortunately, they don't get all of the fortification. And so this can actually lead to someone thinks they're doing a good thing by adopting loads of whole foods and starting to eat healthier. But what they're actually doing is they really kind of potentially set the stage for vitamin and nutrient deficiencies because their whole food diet is not actually meeting all of the required criteria. Mm. Um, so, no. yeah, I mean, it, yeah. 
I was just going to say, not to mention the fact that the fortified, um, like the foods that are fortified with vitamin D, milk being a big one, um, it's vitamin D1. It's not vitamin D2, or sorry, D3. No, wait, maybe it's D2 and not D3. Yes, sorry. It's vitamin D2. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, Tiff's here, by the way. Oh, cool. Hey, Tiff. <laughs> <clears throat> How's it going? I mean to break up your bromance. No. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. But sorry, but Elliot, yeah, go you're on. right. Then. It's oh. uh, D2, the plant form. Right. That they're yeah. getting, not the D3. And if mm. you don't have enough D3, there's all the heart disease and cancer that comes along with that. Mm. Yeah. There's also uh, there's creatine. That's one that you can technically make. But the problem is, is that uh, some people don't make it very well. And I mean, most of the creatine comes in the form of red meat. It's it's what you use uh, to make energy in your muscles and all sorts of other things, and so you find it in muscle meats. So a large source of creatine actually comes in from from meat in the diet, and vegetarians don't eat meat, and so uh, there's a good chance that there's there's a lack of creatine. In fact, some studies have actually shown that uh, vegetarians have do have have a, a lack of creatine. And then there's I mean there's the one that everyone knows about, which is vitamin B12. And that is literally that you can only get that from animal foods. Mm-hmm. I have no idea how anyone how anyone lives on a pure vegan diet. I mean th- there is some <clears throat> research which suggests that you can make it by your gut bacteria, but I mean, I've seen research which basically posits that up to like 70 or 80 percent of vegans are severely vitamin B12 deficient. And that I've read that it's even more than that, like 92 percent are deficient in vitamin B12. Essentially, it's like there's all kinds of myths that float around in vegan circles about superfoods that are vegan and actually have B12. They say that about like spirulina. Yeah. Well, it's it's like they, I don't know. They, the the fact of the matter is is that you can't get B12. I mean, there's all these B12 analogs, but they're not actually the usable B12. And uh, you know, so somebody will do a study and be like, oh yeah, spirulina has B12 in it. So all the vid- the vegans jump on that and they're like, yeah, we knew it. We can we can sustain our diet and we have no problem. But the fact of the matter <laughs> is that it's it's these B12 analogs and it's not usable by the body in the same way that B12 is. So it's like. It's basically like just it's really dangerous, actually, is perpetuating this myth, because I know there are a lot of vegans out there who don't want to supplement and they they will, you know, look for natural sources where they can get these vitamins and they, they, they read these myths and think that they'll be fine and they end up injuring themselves or injuring their family, even worse, their kids. So it's it's actually really dangerous. You, you cannot get B12 in a food source from a non-animal source. You just can't do it. Yeah, here, here are the facts, and the fact is, is that there have been no known, I mean, this is ever, there has been no known traditional culture which has ever survived for any period of time on a vegan diet. Mm. And so anyone who is a vegan needs to understand that they are doing something which is an experiment. Yeah, this is something in terms of humanity in general, this is something that you are putting yourself in a position which is, I guess you could say, unnatural. And therefore, if you're really going to do it, you need to supplement unnatural forms of vitamins to 
mitigate the potential consequences of your decision mm-hmm. because yeah. it's 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 unknown in nature. Um, I mean, there was Dr. Weston A. Price. He was a he was a dentist, and I think this was in the early 20th century. And so he basically started seeing more children come into his dental clinic with cavities and uh, malformations of their teeth, the structure of their jaws. And so he basically decided that he was going to travel all around the world looking for the perfect sets of teeth. And so he found, he, he went everywhere. I mean, I think he went into... Um, Right up up north, I think he went to Siberia. He went to South America. He went all throughout Europe, all to to all of these sort of indigenous cultures. And what he found a consistent thing among every single one of them was that they all utilized animal foods in in one way or another. Um, and that he found that they had perfect teeth. Uh, it was it was only the cultures which adopted um, industrialized food processing methods that started getting tooth decay and, and problems with their teeth. And so he, um, you know, he actually wrote a book and it was called um, oh, what was it? I've forgotten um, the name of name of the was, book. What is it? nutrition? Uh, something in nutrition. Ah, oh, man, I'm forgetting. Yeah, yeah, I forgot it as well. But it's it, it's an extensive book, and he basically, you know, he showed that there is no such thing as a vegan culture. And so I think this is something that vegans really need to take into consideration, that if they are going to put their body through that, then they do need to sort of really take measures to prevent against serious nutrient deficiency. It's called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. That's the one. Yeah. It's very good, worth worth reading. Yeah, I think you had a good point there, Elliot, when you said if they want to put themselves through this, and I think that's kind of the uh, one one of the the issues with this is like <clears throat> like it being an experiment. There are extreme examples from all different like cases of life. What I mean is where somebody lived a really long time in some sort of bizarre, bizarre scenario. You know, like there's a guy, I forget his name, who's a vegan bodybuilder. If you look up vegan bodybuilder, you'll find him. He looks incredible. He's totally ripped. But I don't know what kind of supplements he's doing or what his regimen is like. And George Burns lived to be 90-something on Cuban tobacco and vodka, you know. <laughs> so it's like there there are examples all over the place of all these weird one-off cases. But I think that uh, we need to be careful about citing those you know, as, as things. So when people, like you said, they're like, Oh, spirulina has B. So now we can use that. We're good now. You know, that's one of those assumptions that's based off of edge case. Yeah. And it, it's, it seems like there are, there is like a subset of the population who were born in very physically, uh, robust bodies. I mean, they, they are just robust in their health. And yeah. they seem to be able to adapt to lots of different conditions. Um, they can adapt to different diets fairly well. And, you know, there's, I think genetics plays a part as well. You know, if someone was born with all the perfect genetics or whatever, and they can sort of extract nutrients from ve- vegetables properly, then I think, you know, it's, it's possible to survive. I mean, some people do it. But as you just said, Jonathan, to extrapolate that to a large 
proportion of the population I think is really dangerous because many of us not only do we have like certain genetics but we're also living in like a really toxic world <laughs> and so what we may have been able to survive on in you know 200 years ago it's not necessarily the case now and so you know those weird and wonderful cases of like vegan bodybuilders I'm sorry but I I've read of numerous cases of people trying to do bodybuilding and ter- terribly failing on a vegan diet. Yeah. You know? And it's just like one out of 10 may, may be able to do it. Well, it's not just genetics too. It's also like what your parents and grandparents were eating because these nutritional deficiencies a lot of times will like work their way through the generations. So if you're, if your grandparents, great grandparents, your parents were eating uh, like a reasonable diet that was kind of giving them all the, the nutrition that they needed, then you kind of have a better chance starting out. But it's like if, if you're, um, you know, how many generations of processed foods been around? You know, three, four? So then it's like if your grandparents were one of the ones who, who started eating all this processed crap and weren't getting a good um, uh, nutritional balance in their foods and your parents did the same thing, then your chances are like nil starting out and you really have to try and make up for all those deficiencies that have been passed down um you know you can see it in in a lot of the uh, what's going on right now you know you got these kids with with these diseases that used to be um prevalent only in kind of the aged and now you're starting to see like you know teenagers who are coming down with this kind of stuff and it's it's basically because you know it's generation after generation that are eating crap and it's like it takes a lot less time for them to fall apart Right. So that ripped bodybuilder might just have been lucky. Maybe his parents and grandparents had a really robust and sound diet, and he just lucked out. Yeah. And he was able to build his muscles up, even though he was a vegan. I don't know if he was a vegan from a very young age, but maybe yeah. he was just lucky. Yeah. Well, I think yeah, I think that's the point. Is if if nine other people try that same thing, they'll fail and hurt themselves. Mm-hmm. Generally, yeah. <clears throat> and and there's there's something that's really common I think in in the sort of nutritional circles is when you when you look at a food in a lab like a particular say type of vegetable or grain or something and they extract in a petri dish different nutrients so they'll say okay so this has um, you know 200 milligrams of iron or this has you know uh, 40 milligrams of zinc or something like that it's easy to jump on that and to assume "Ah, okay when i eat this food this means that i'm going to get this much nutrition out of that food Mm -hmm. but what many people fail to understand is that plants have developed certain capacities to protect themselves and part of those protective mechanisms include certain anti-nutrients and anti-nutritional factors which really uh, hamper our ability to to digest those foods and they hamper our ability to extract nutrients from those foods as well so just because you can measure a certain degree of nutrient in a lab doesn't mean that that's what you're going to extract from that and it always seems to be the case that nutrients are always more bioavailable in animal products I mean that that's just it's non-debatable and this is something that I don't think anyone can really disagree with and I don't 
you kind of have to perform some sort of mental gymnastics to get around this fact, but everything sort of points to the the idea that we are probably designed to eat animals. Um, and I think probably our heritage plays a part, you know, like if you've lived, if, if you lived in culture, which is adopted, you know, like for instance, Indians, you know, Indians seem to be able to tolerate rice quite well. Mm. Um, and it seems to be in their culture, you know, it's like embedded within their, within their culture, you know, they eat rice and some of them can eat rice and live really long and healthy lives. But then if you bring rice over to the UK, it's like, we've never been, we've never had any exposure to that food. And so to assume that, okay, because this subset of the population can eat that food and that's a vegetarian food, we bring it over to another part of the world and assume that they can eat that food as well. It's, it's difficult because there's all sorts of, there's all fact, all sorts of factors that we don't understand yet, but mm-hmm. there seems to be, uh, there's, there definitely seems to be a sort of cultural thing or like, uh, you know, an, an adaptation to our environment. And a lot, a lot of the people in the Western world, um, you know, during the winter time, I ain't being funny. We don't have much vegetables growing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I mean, I don't know where you're going to get your cabbage. Well, you might get a cabbage. <laughs> I don't know where yeah. you're going to get those oranges and bananas and all these crazy fruits and stuff. That's yeah, a really just... good point. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Uh, no, no, it was there. And, and, and there's there's a, a lot of research coming out now talking about the microbiome and about how um, the bacteria which populate our gut and which populate our skin and everywhere else in our body is almost like intimately connected with our environment as well. So the, it brings up in the, you know, the, the, the concept of seasonal eating and science is really sort of getting a grasp of that and actually um, providing evidence which suggests that we are really optimally designed to i mean for instance if you live in a temperate climate i mean say you live in the uk i'll just give my example i live in the uk so my the temperature um of the environment the 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 soil the air i mean the soil contains certain nutrients and my body um what evidence is suggesting is that the microbiome of someone living in the uk is optimally adapted to the nutrients that grow in the soil in the UK. So if there's certain nutrients that are more abundant in the soil, the microbiome will um, almost adapt to that. And, and um, yeah, there, there seems to be an intimate relationship between us and our environment. And, and unfortunately, I think on a vegetarian diet, there's there's very little way of... of um, of getting all of your nutrients while eating the diet that, or, or, or the food that naturally grows around you, especially in the mm-hmm. winter time. Yeah. yeah. I think that's true. Totally agree. I mean, if you did that around here, so I live in on the coast of Lake Superior in the Northern U S uh, basically across from Canada. But if you did <clears throat> a macrobiotic vegetarian diet here, it would be rooty vegetables uh, pr- pretty much. That would be it <laughs> that yeah. I could think of, you know, like celerac, like wild yeah. celery. Yeah. Well, they can always can their fruity vegetables <laughs> or 
their fruits and their vegetables and eat them during the winter time. But it seems like they have to go through such ministrations and jump through so many hoops in order to sustain their lifestyle. Yeah. But it just seems like it's it's so much trouble. Yeah. To live that yeah. way. Yeah. Well, there's a. <clears throat> I'm sure I... you guys talked about this before. I was just basically just going against the natural order of things. And if you have to jump through all of these hoops just in order to eat in a way that you believe that is sustainable, then it's probably not the best idea. Right. But of course, you know, we can't convince anybody of this. It's their free choice to do what they want to do. Totally. But, um, <clears throat> it occurs to me too, that there's a lot of, uh, and I've been hearing this term recently, uh, recreational outrage around <laughs> this topic, which I think is a really poignant term because it is like, there's legitimate outrage and recreational outrage and people are really, <clears throat> I think we have too many conveniences. Like we were talking about in a recent show about how once we have more systems that do things for us, we can do more frivolous things because we don't have to work as hard to survive. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of happening right now where people are looking for something to be outraged about because they're, they're bored essentially. Well, yeah. I think that uh, you probably would be hard-pressed to find a poor vegan. It seems to be kind of a more, like, middle, upper-class kind of phenomenon. You know, it's like the person who who becomes a vegan is somebody who has the kind of disposable income or, you know, time to do that. You know, it's not not people who are kind of poor and struggling to put food on the table. Right. And it's... um... It's kind of like a fad now, you know, it's really becoming popular in the mainstream. Um, One of my colleagues at work, she's actually talking about going vegan. And it's like, I've, I've spoke to so many other people who've said that and they, they, they know, they understand absolutely zero about nutrition. I it seems to be something, it's just like, oh, this is the new cool thing to do. I'll go vegan. And they don't really know anything about it or why they would do it. And I think that is particularly dangerous because I think there are some sort of well-informed vegans to some extent who do actually take um, uh, preventative measures, things like, you know, B12 and other nutrients that they supplement with. But there is a certain danger, I think, with people just jumping on the fad because that is potentially paving the way for some long-term chronic health issues. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was some... There was research done on uh, male fertility, and it was talking about, uh, I think it showed that when you compared meat eaters' sperm to um, to vegetarian sperm, vegetarian sperm, uh, or the vegetarians only had 30% active sperm, whereas the meat eaters had 60% active sperm. Yeah. And so, I mean, the, double the amount of fertility yeah. there. I mean, is that is that a way of? I mean, is that a way like? Uh, is that natural selection? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it could yeah. be. Yeah. Well, the funny sure. thing is too. It's like it's not just that it's trendy. It's it's actually being promoted, and it's mm-hmm. like all these kind of government bodies and things like that will come out with these statements about how yes, you know, a vegan diet is perfectly sustainable for people. And I mean, I think it was the American uh, Dietetic Association or something like that that said that it's perfectly healthy for kids to be vegan. And you can feed your kids vegan, and uh, and and it'll be no problem. Like yeah. you know, it's it's like these authoritative figures <clears throat> are actually coming out and saying that oh no, it's good. 
and you should, you know, be converting to a plant-based diet is is healthy and it's what you should be doing. So yeah, I think it, I think at this point it goes beyond kind of trendiness. Even Gabby did an article about the American Heart Association coming out with some kind of statement saying that everybody should be vegetarian or something along those lines. I think well, it's gotten to the point now where people who aren't even vegetarian or vegan, just regular old meat eaters, view vegetarian or vegan diets as healthier than yeah. eating meat just because of the propaganda that's put out by these health industries that a plant-based diet, I mean, they say plant-based, but they they kind of give the impression that they include some healthy meats in mm. there, but plant-based, to my mind, always means vegetarian or vegan. So a lot of people have this in their mind that those diets are healthier, even though they won't particularly switch over to a vegan or a vegetarian diet. Yeah. But I think that they're, the health industries are doing a good job in putting that out there, even though yeah. it's completely not true. Yeah, it's interesting that you said about plant-based diets because, um, you know, I was thinking about this before because um, I, I always associated plant-based diets with, like, vegetarianism or veganism. But then when I look at my plate, <laughs> like my diet these days, when I look at my plate, most of it is some kind of plant food, yeah? Like, it's not all plant food. I mean, I eat a lot of meat in comparison to most people. But for instance, for lunch, I had a really big salad. I had all sorts of cool stuff, like a bit of beetroot and some radish and some kale and stuff. And I had some sardines and lots of butter. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there was a lot of plants in there. But I think there is this, uh, I forgot what I was going to say, sorry. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I'm not dissing on plants. We're, we're not yeah. dissing on plants. Like, plants have some amazing benefits, yeah? They, they, they do yeah. uh, in moderation and the certain types that are good. But, um, but I guess there's that black and white thinking that we touched upon before and it's like okay you appreciate this thing's got antioxidants in or polyphenols or some cool property that it does and it's assuming okay because this has this good property i should eat it's the only thing that i should eat and i don't need anything else you know and this is what they do and they always talk about antioxidants and all this stuff and it's kind of like uh yeah uh yeah, I don't no, know I where think, I was going with that. I think you're totally right. It's kind of like the uh, the edge case scenario that I brought up. Like, there's another guy who's again, I can't remember his name, but if you look up uh, pure carnivore, I think that is how you could find this guy. He eats only red meat, only hmm. like nothing else, literally at all, and he's fine. He's he looks great. He's in, I think he's in his fifties. Um, he's healthy, all that, but he's one of those edge cases. You know, so I think that's uh, equally misguided to be like, well, I'll just eat all steak every day and nothing else. Like, no, you need other things. Like, we are omnivores know. for a reason. I think. I think that I, I think there's actually quite a few people out there. They, I mean, you know, I'm just guessing at this, but I, yeah. I, some people actually really benefit from an all meat diet. I think it's sure. actually much more possible to do an all meat diet than it is to do an all vegetable diet. I think um, you're right there. Yeah. Because we and we yeah. did have the interview with. Um, Michaela Peterson on the show um, before, and she was talking about her diet, and she was essentially eating like beef. I think she yeah. had other meats sometimes, but she said that meat, like beef, kind of made her feel the best. So that's yeah. what she was basically eating. And I just read a recent blog post, and she said that uh, Jordan Peterson has actually switched to that one as well. Right on. 
So there you See, go. I guess yeah. proof right there. <laughs> There's lots of small groups of people who just exist on beef. Yeah. Most of them do prefer beef and they eat some fat, but you know, a lot of people can do it and it's very satisfying. I did it for a while. And the only reason I incorporated other foods was because I got bored. <laughs> I wanted a different say, yeah. in my mouth. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I vegetables are good for that, for variety, if you just get sick of just eating meat. But it in yeah. no way made me feel any better because I added vegetables <laughs> to my diet. Yeah, I found the same think, thing, actually. I think, Doug, you had a good point that it's, pro- it's, it's more possible to eat all meat than it is and be healthy than it is to eat no meat and be healthy. Yeah. Uh, I just, I guess, Tiff, I had a similar reaction to you. I'm like, uh, it sounds boring to me. I mean, like, I love broccoli and carrots. And I feel like when I don't have them, like, I'm missing out on something. Like, my body feels it. And when I eat broccoli, like steamed broccoli, you know, with with my steak or whatever, I'm like, it feels really good. So I feel like there's, I mean, I know that there's a lot of good nutrients in broccoli, but I'm speaking purely from, like, a gut sensation that feels good when I eat it. I feel like I'm or a purely I'm mouth feel sensation. <laughs> right. You want no, but I mean as far as how I feel, <laughs> how I feel after I eat too. I notice that yeah. that little kind of pickup, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean it, <clears throat> that's another thing too. I think is people finding that sensitivity to their body. A lot of people mm-hmm. don't have that body awareness because they're so full of inflammation that they can't tell when something is bad for them, you know. Um, so, I don't know. Uh, but it, to the vegetable thing, I, I agree. I think it's, for me, it's kind of like what you said. It's a it's sort of a boredom issue. But I don't know if it's 100% that. I mean, I guess I'm not a, I'm ready, not ready to stand on saying that you need a completely balanced diet. But for me personally, I like it. That's what feels good. Like red meat, chicken, fish, broccoli, mm-hmm. carrots, onions, uh, and like cabbage is pretty much where I'm at. Cool. Yeah, and butter. Lots of butter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are there are some cases like um, say there's like ketogenic diets that are really beneficial for certain types of cancer. But I mean there are cases when now I don't know. I mean, I guess this is just the research. I guess I don't know whether you would. I'm not sure if they've ever done a pure meat diet for that, but I know that there's research on some cancers where the people haven't benefited from going on a ketogenic diet, and then there's people who have cut out meat, and maybe if there's a a problem metabolizing the fat, if they've got like a problem metabolizing the fat, then when they cut out the meat, they suddenly start getting better, Um, Mm -hmm. and but I don't think that's something necessarily inherent to humans or I- inherent. I think that's pro- maybe for some people it is inherent, but I think maybe it, it's probably a defect in metabolism. And I would imagine that most human beings, like like you've just said, most human beings are probably well adapted to just like a pure meat diet. Because I could imagine that that's probably what we had to sustain ourselves on during winter time and time of famine and stuff. Mm. Um, because pre-agriculture, I mean, you just wouldn't have that much access to vegetables, mm. um, uh, or I say vegetables. I think I think the foraging has always been a thing. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's benefits to that, but I mean, there's only so much you can do. I mean, I've been foraging recently um, in my garden. So I've been, uh, I've got dandelions growing and I've just been pigging out on dandelion leaves. 
because um, they've got some great properties to deliver. So before I mowed my garden this morning and yesterday, I went out and I says, right, okay, I'm going to get all the leaves. Got the flowers as well, and the flowers taste really sweet. I've been making salads with the leaves, and they're really good for digestion. So I could imagine that you'd probably make use of, of, of things like that, especially in herbal medicine and stuff. But as a main component of the diet, I mean, all year round, it just doesn't seem feasible to me. There wouldn't you know? be enough to sustain yourself. Like, how many dandelion leaves were you able to get from your back garden? Was it enough well, and, to satisfy you? If you like, if you were going to eat that just by itself, was it like a handful? Yeah, I mean, the, th- the thing is, yeah, I, I got like a big handful, but I could eat that all pretty much in one mouthful. You know what I mean? And I'd still be really hungry. So it's it's like yeah. a relish. It's a relish, and it's like a medicine. Mm-hmm. You take it because it helps the digestion to digest food. It's not food, you know. Right. <laughs> it's to digest the food, and the food yeah. is the meat. Totally. Well, it's the same with cats. They're obligate carnivores. You see them go out in the the yard and they'll start chewing on a little grass. Maybe because yeah. they need some some kind of pick-me-up from the grass, whatever it does to their guts. It might be beneficial, but they're in no way going to just graze all day. they got to eat meat. Yeah. 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 There, there was an interesting... Um, there was a, an article we were reading for the show, and it was talking about some, uh, I think it was archaeological studies or some professor of archaeology or human anthropology or something like that. Uh, he was talking about how um, gorillas, the difference between the brain size of the gorillas and human beings, and he was saying that for gorillas to be able to uh, grow a brain the size of a human being, they would need to consume an extra 730 calories per day. Mm. And they actually spend like 90% of their waking lives eating. (laughs) So they graze all the time. And the difference is is that they're vegetarian predominantly. And so they were talking about how, because there's this idea that vegans think that human beings could have evolved on a purely vegan or vegetarian diet. And the the science just does not back that up because right. the, the caloric density of vegetable and plant matter is is so small when you compare it to meat and so for us to have been able to evolve the size of our brain uh, not only do you need lots of omega-3 dha and cholesterol because the brain is like the richest source of cholesterol and you get cholesterol from meat but um but to be able to consume enough calories to develop a brain the size that a human being has, uh, you would get a lot of that from fat. Uh, yeah. There's no getting around it, and it's very difficult. I don't know if you, you – you probably know, you know, if you tried a vegetarian diet, you have to eat loads. And so some of my colleagues, uh, you know, when I go to study – I see them eating all the time. They're like snacking all day. They need yeah. to constantly eat food because it's so like nutritionally scarce. And you know, the really interesting thing is, is that most of the vegans are always really cold. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> yeah. like we'll open the window and they'll say, no, 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 close the window. And they'll have like blankets and stuff around them all the time. They look gray and they're just really cold all the time. I figured it's probably because <laughs> they've got such destroyed thyroid and everything <laughs> like that and their metabolism is so screwed because they're just they're depriving themselves of of you know the things that we need to to sort of run a healthy metabolism 
Yeah, I tried <clears throat> a number of years ago, and this is a while back now, like nine years ago, I think, uh, give or take. I tried vegetarianism for, I want to say, about six months, six to eight months. And at first, I felt amazing because it was like what you said. <clears throat> I had cut out all the crap, emptied my kitchen. I was eating processed foods, pretty much whatever, beer, pizza, all that before that. So I, I cut everything out and went on like brown rice and vegetables for for a while for like a month and a half and I felt incredible but then I started to feel worse and worse and skip forward to when I decided to eat meat again it was like my body was like a spaceship in a sci-fi movie turning on it was like you know everything like booting up like it felt incredible um and I did go through that cycle of quitting what I was eating before and eating only vegetarian and feeling really good and then as I got into that, noticing the deficiencies, and then when I went back to meat, now I'm eating a more healthy meat-based diet and not all the crap that I was before and feeling even better. So I had that weird experience. And now I know <clears throat> that, you know, like there are certain things that if I eat within a day or two, I'm going to be tight, sore, inflamed for like a week, you know. And that sensitivity came from going through that, that process. But I, you know... <clears throat> You don't want to tell people to try dangerous things, right? But I guess in this case, I would say go ahead and try it. Try vegetarianism. See how you feel, you know, and go past the point of feeling really good about it and let it go for a little while. And you'll be able to tell. I think 99% of the people that try this can tell that you're going to feel like shit after like six months. That's just my personal opinion. So because I know other people who are vegans, you know, have been for their whole lives and they would claim that they don't feel that way. So I don't know. It's hard to tell. Oh, they know their brains are shrunken. Yeah. Well, that's that. <clears throat> that's that sensitivity that you build up. You know, they may not know. Mm-hmm. They may think that a state of inflammation is normal. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not so. you know particularly just something that vegans do. I mean, a lot of people do that no, no matter what their diet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we actually start like we named our show. Do you have to be mental to be a vegan? And I'm yeah. thinking this just because uh, Tiff brought this up, you know, their brains are shrunken. And it's mm-hmm. a lot of the nutrients that um, uh, Elliot was mentioning um, are particularly needed for the brain. And I think one of the things that inspired this show actually was, you know, the things that we're seeing in the news a lot recently about kind of vegans doing really, really crazy things. Like there was the recent one of the uh, the woman who went and shot up YouTube because her, uh, they changed their algorithm and her videos were no longer getting any hits. Well, she was like kind of – a lot of her videos actually dealt with veganism. She was a rather militant vegan. And it's kind of like, well, you know, so if, if the vegans aren't getting all this nutrition that they need for their brains, does it kind of make them go a little bit wacky and crazy? And there was another one actually where there was a guy who was actually a vegan chef and he had like a cookbook and he was somewhat prolific in the vegan uh, community – and he ended up, like, going crazy, shooting his wife or ex-wife and both their kids and kind of, like, barricading himself in the house and, like, having a shootout with police. Whoa. So it's kind of like, I mean, obviously this is another situation where you can't just say, well, all vegans are crazy because mm-hmm. clearly that's not true. But it, it yeah. kind of leads one to wonder, like, is kind of there's something missing in the diet that if you don't get it, you're kind of going to go a little bit crazy. Contribute. Well, well, you there can, was at least some it's... research done where they were looking into that question. And I think their conclusion was that there are 
unstable people or people who have some sort of mental illness, which makes them more prone to choose to become a vegan because of whatever beliefs that they have. And they're basically unstable before they became a vegan, but a Mm. vegan diet didn't really help matters much. Like that woman who shot up YouTube. Like if you look at some of the articles that were posted on SAT about, uh, and they had clips about her, uh, her YouTube channel and all the videos that she put up. I mean, this chick is just bizarre. She was weird. And I don't know if you can attribute all of that to being a vegan. She was probably just weird even before all of that. I think that can probably be said for a lot of people who are vegans. They might have some very strong beliefs or have a tendency or some sort of genetic weakness for mental illness. And then they choose to become a vegan and things just go off the rails. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's the, um, <clears throat> that, uh, banana guy. What was his name? Remember that guy? Oh, durian rider. Banana a day, like a hundred bananas a day or something. Durian rider. Yeah. He is, uh, he's definitely an edge case. Yeah. He's a nut, nut yeah. case for sure. He yeah. just, he's, there's so much rage. Yeah. I, I feel like he might be one of those folks who's like, he's got a little mental illness going on and, and the veganism is making it worse. Yeah. yeah. I saw a YouTube video actually where he and, uh, another guy, and I don't think he was a paleo guy, but it was kind of like a pro meat kind of health guy. And they're both Australian, and, like, they ended up in some kind of scuffle and ended up on YouTube. Like, they were, like, fighting each other over it. <laughs> Durian Ryder was definitely the one who came across as more of the crazy guy. And the other dude was just kind of being more defensive, but it, <laughs> it was it was pretty crazy. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I think uh, we're coming up on our time here. Um, do we have the pet health segment queued yes. up? Are we able to do that? Let's yeah. go to that, and then we'll, we'll wrap up when we come back. Okay. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. This week's topic is vegetarian diet for pets. Good or bad? Well, the answer to this one is that it is good if you're a rabbit, but it is incredibly bad if you're a cat. Unfortunately, not everyone understands it, and there are people who choose to be vegetarians and they force their choices on their pets, harming their health and well-being in the process. So listen up to Dr. Karen Becker when she talks about feeding pets with vegan, uh, vegan or vegetarian diets. It's possible that I shared this recording in the past, but her materials are so good and important, it would be appropriate to share it again. Have a great weekend and goodbye. Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Becker, and today I want to talk to you about the dangerous practice that seems to be growing in popularity. It's feeding dogs and cats a vegan or vegetarian diet. Now, I'm a vegetarian, and many of my clients and pet-loving friends and associates also don't eat meat or any animal products. And many people make the switch after learning about the realities of factory farming, especially the inhumane treatment of food animals. So I certainly understand and appreciate the personal decision many people make to adopt a vegan or vegetarian lifestyle. Um, if you are going to eat meat, I also really appreciate the fact that you can recognize the difference between factory farmed animals and the happy, healthy life of a free-range animal that 
is able to move their body outside and have access to sunlight and have a really happy life prior to death. So if you do eat meat, hopefully you're eating happy, healthy uh, animals that had a good life prior to death. That would be my next best choice. What I will never understand, though, is why many vegans and vegetarians think it's okay to force their personal viewpoints, their personal dietary choices onto their dog or cat. Humans, homo sapiens, are omnivores, meaning our bodies can digest plant material uh, and animal tissues both. Dogs and cats are carnivores, which means they are meat eaters, and they don't digest plant material very efficiently at all. Dogs are scavenging carnivores, and kitties are obligate carnivores. And nature designed the bodies of carnivores to thrive on nutrients provided by animal flesh and organ meat. Cats are obligate carnivores, which means they must eat meat to sustain life. And as scavenging carnivores, dogs can survive on plant material, but they'll never thrive on plant material alone. Nature has provided uh, meat eaters uh, the evolutionary design to need to consume that to be able to thrive and really not only unlock a healing potential, but to provide all the raw materials for their bodies to function optimally. And surviving means just that, that they can get by by consuming some plant material or an abundance of plant material, or in this situation, all plant material, but they will never healthfully live a long lifespan as they should, and they will have medical and degenerative conditions along the way. To thrive means to grow rigorously or to flourish, which doesn't happen when you feed carnivores as vegetarians or vice versa. If you make a vegetarian animal, let's say a rabbit, into a, uh, into a carnivore. It's interesting because some species, um, you're able to nutritionally abuse them more. Some animals are incredibly delicate. Let's take hummingbirds, for instance. If you were to force a hummingbird to eat anything other than nectar, within 24 hours, that animal just dies. It's very apparent. You can't do that. Dogs and cats are super resilient. They're really strong animals. So you actually can nutritionally abuse them, and they don't die instantaneously. Their bodies degenerate over time, but because they can withstand nutritional abuse, it doesn't make it okay to do it, in my opinion. Unfortunately, many people assume that since dogs aren't strict carnivores like cats are, that they can easily transition their dog to a vegetarian or even a vegan diet. In fact, I often hear dogs referred to as omnivores, which simply isn't correct. Dogs' taxonomic classification is Canis lupus. They are in the same family as their cousins, the gray wolves. Just because a dog manages to stay alive on plant-based foods or plant-based diets doesn't make him an omnivore. What research does show is that if dogs are fed a grain-based diet for decades, over time, they do develop the adaptations for processing starch in their diet. This is called an evolutionary adaptation. And thank goodness, actually, these adaptations do occur. If animals didn't adapt to their environment or inappropriate food sources or diets that they're forced to eat, they would actually just die. They'd go extinct. So the good news is dogs can upregulate their amylase production, which is the digestive enzyme necessary to process starch. If you feed a dog a starch-based diet for several generations, they're going to produce more amylase, but that doesn't make it species correct or biologically appropriate to do so. Your dog or cat has the teeth, jaws, digestion, and the palate of a carnivore. An animal's teeth are specifically adapted for the food that they were born to eat. Your pet's teeth are designed to rip and tear and shear flesh off of bone. The molars are very pointed. They're not flat. So human molars, humans are omnivores, have large flat molars because they're designed to grind up plant matter. Same with other vegetarian species. If you look at all vegetarian species like cows, they have incredibly whole sets of big, wide, flat molars really used to masticate plant matter. 
Think for a moment about black bears, which are also omnivores. They actually have both sharp, pointed teeth in the front of their mouth for ripping and tearing flesh, but they also have large, wide, flat molars in the back of their mouth for consuming plant-based material. Your dog and cat do not have any flat molars because nature didn't design for them to consume an abundance of grains or eat a plant-based diet exclusively. Your pet also has powerful jaw and neck muscles that aid in the pulling down and consuming of prey. The jaws are able to be opened very, very wide and accommodate whole chunks of meat and bone. And your dogs and cats' mouths only move one way, like a hinged jaw. This action lateral mandibular swing if we're a, if you as a species are able to do that you were designed to consume probably either a vegetarian diet or an omnivorous diet but dogs and cats being carnivores they don't have the side to side motion necessary to grind grasses and grains in contrast omnivores and herbivores have jaws that are that have this lateral mandibular swing or side to side motion necessary for grinding plant material seeds and grains Then there's your carnivorous pet's stomach, which is uh, very uh, acidic. It's very short, and it's really designed to get food in and out because dogs and cats consume fresh whole prey, but certainly not clean meat. Dogs don't remove the GI tracts, and they don't remove the dirty parts, and they don't remove the feces out of the colon. When your kitty consumes a whole mouse, they eat the whole mouse, and it's certainly not clean. So they're meant to move meat, organ, and bone through the GI tract very quickly. Plant matter and vegetables need more time to break down in the GI tract, which requires a different and more complex digestive design than your dog or cat's body processes. This is also why vegetarian animals tend to masticate or chew their food over and over and over. Ruminants chew their cud to facilitate improved digestion, which means they chew their food and then they eructate, bring it up, and then they chew it some more. So that term wolf it down came from canis lupus where wolves and dogs were meant to just tear chunks of meat up and get it into their bellies as fast as possible dogs and cats are not amazing masticators or chewers no carnivores really are they actually rip the food off they get it into manageable pieces and then down it goes that's why whole veggies or grains and seeds tend to come out in your dog's feces uh, just as they went in because there's not a whole lot of digestion of those particular food items Your pet's stomach isn't equipped to break down seeds or nuts um, very efficiently unless they're ground up. They simply travel through the GI tract intact and be, and then they're passed out at the end undigested, so you can see it coming out. Dogs and cats also don't make the necessary enzymes in their saliva to break down the carbs or starches that they could be eating. Omnivores and herbivores make those enzymes, but not carnivores, because very little to no salivary enzymes exist to process carbs and starches, and because your pet carnivore does not produce cellulase to break down the tough, fibrous plant cell walls, your pet's pancreas, which is designed to produce an abundance of lipase and proteases to process fats and proteins, has to work overtime to manufacture enough amylase to process any grains or starch that could be found in the diet. Over time, the extra strain on the pancreas can compromise its ability to function properly. Sure, all wild dogs and many wild cats have absolutely been documented to consume a little grass. Wolves and coyotes have been documented to eat actually an abundance of berries or plant-based material that's seasonally available, and especially if they're starving. And because the intake of fibrous plant material is kind of up and down, and because usually it's less than 20% of their diet, The pancreas can easily keep up with this minimal intake, no problem. 
dogs and cats did not evolve to eat a 100% carbohydrate-based diet, so feeding them this way would be very biologically stressful. Your pet also doesn't produce the strains of gut bacteria necessary to break down cellulose and starch within the plant matter. This means your carnivore's ability to use plant matter as an amazing energy source is limited. Most dogs and cats don't care for the taste of vegetarian pet foods, which makes sense because they're carnivores. The reason dogs and cats are willing to eat a primarily grain-based commercial pet food or a vegan commercial pet food is because they're mostly well-seasoned with flavor enhancers after processing. So after the kibble is produced, uh, it's sprayed with a palatability enhancer or a top coat to trick the pets into eating them. There are also meat and poultry flavored digests that can be sprayed on that are made of animal byproducts, which means even though it could be a vegan pet food within the product, what's sprayed on the top is oftentimes not necessarily vegan. Ironically, adding one of those digests to the top of the food doesn't make that food any more nutritious as well, so it just tricks uh, the animal into eating a not biologically appropriate food. So even though the dogs could be duped into eating it, they're still not being nourished in a way that is going to be sustainable to their long-term overall well-being. Have those goats eaten a lot of meat today? No, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> Damn it. Those are some vegetarian goats. <laughs> vegetarian goats. grass. <laughs> That's funny. That was uh, very enlightening. Thank you, Zoya. That was really cool. Um, I never had that discussion about cats before, um, mm-hmm. but I have wondered about dogs because our dog eats uh, broccoli and, and carrots. Strange enough, she appears to like them very much. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's part, it's probably the crunch, you know, and it's a, it, I thought it was a very interesting point about the, uh, the scavenging carnivore aspect of that, because you do hear people say that, well, dogs eat, you know, vegetables, like, yeah, but not, not to live, right? Yeah. <laughs> but the whole funny. cat thing is really infuriating. Like that's just the height of arrogance to try to force something like that on your, on your pet. You know? Well, yeah. And there's a shelter actually in LA that's talking about, um, converting all the food that they're feeding to their animals, which includes dogs and cats, to all vegan. And, uh, yeah, it's crazy. And the funny thing was is that, you know, Moby, he was like, he, like, made a statement, like, in support of it saying, oh, yeah, that's great. You know, it's wonderful that they're going to feed these animals vegan diets. Like, how stupid can you get? It's just, yeah. yeah. Well, luckily, the chief veterinarian there said it was a horrible idea. So, I don't know, I guess the shelter doesn't want to be in business for very long or want to keep the animals alive long enough to be adopted. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, Dr. Vector said in that clip, uh, animals can take a lot of abuse and they'll degenerate over time. So maybe the dogs will survive long enough to be adopted. But Maybe it'll be more incentive for people to adopt them. It's like they're yeah. being yeah. to these animals. I have to adopt yeah. them and give them some meat. Yeah. <laughs> Reminds me of a... <laughs> Uh, any Futurama fans in our audience, the uh, the episode where they were arguing about about this topic, and this guy says, animals eat other animals. And then the, the hippie who had a lion next to him was like, yeah, but we taught a lion to live on tofu. And they cut to the lion, and you can see its ribs, and it's like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Find the truth. Anyway. Well, <clears throat> that is our show for today. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, appreciate the busy chat that we had today. Um, <clears throat> so be sure to tune into the SOT Radio Show on Sunday at noon Eastern time. 
and we will be back next week with a new topic and a full crew. So, okay. have a great Bye, weekend. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.